Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. When it comes to fitness, what's real? How about when it really truly fits your life? That's how anytime fitness season because our coaches see you. It's how they build personal plans that work wherever you are and focus on everything that matters from fitness to nutrition to recovery. All so you can push yourself further than ever or just through the next rep. It's total 360 support for a real difference. That's Anytime Fitness. That's Real AF. Visit anytimefitness.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, welcome to IKEA, where even this desk is circular. Huh. How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Hello, everyone. Just before we get going with today's podcast, I wanted to mention a new deal we've got for a discount on books. Each month, we're going to pick three books which James and I are recommending you read. And the good news is we've arranged for members of the independent company to get 30% off all three titles through Waterstones. First up is Greyhound, the magnificent book about a convoy being hunted by U-boats in the freezing North Atlantic. It's just been made into a movie by Tom Hanks and will be released this week. The book was written by C.S. Forrester and was originally called The Good Shepherd. James and I both read it during lockdown and absolutely loved it. You're right there inside the captain's mind. That's our joint pick. My personal selection is by a hero of mine, Spike Milligan. Spike was a soldier during the Second World War and wrote a series of brilliant and brilliantly funny books about his experience as a gunner. I'm recommending you start with the first in the series. It's called Hitler, My Part in His Downfall. I promise you'll love it. Finally, James's pick. He's gone for something timely. As we approach the anniversary of the Battle of Britain, James wanted to share with you one of his favourite books on the events of that summer. It's called Eagle Day and is written by Richard Collier. It's based on the accounts of many of the pilots involved and was written in the 1960s when their memories of the battle were still fresh. All members of the independent company will be entitled to 30% off these books. And if you bought all three, that would save you more than £10. 
Membership of the independent company costs £6 a month, so if you do fancy any or all of these books, it makes pretty good sense to join, even if it's just for a month. Anyway, if you do read any of these titles, please share your thoughts with us, and we can organise a sort of We Have Ways book club on one of our live stream shows. You can join the independent company by going to patreon.com slash wehaveways. You get free audiobooks, regular discussion posts, weekly live streams, and now cheap books. As James would say, what's not to like? Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, uh, and what a treat we have for you now. This is very, very exciting. And uh, of course, ties in with Gurglebox, uh, which we hope you enjoyed. If we've done it already, I'd, I can never get any of these podcasts in the right order in my head. Anyway, we are joined, James and I are joined uh, today by John Orloff, um, who wrote, amongst other things, a, a, a glittering and dazzling screenwriting career. Um, but for We Have Ways fans who wrote two episodes of Band of Brothers, um, Day of Days and Why We Fight, the, the ninth episode, the second and ninth episodes respectively. Welcome to the podcast, John. How fantastic that you could join us and, and, and tell us all about the skinny on how you made Band of Brothers. Oh, well, A, it's, it's so lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, and B, well, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> as long as you want, really. You know, it was, it was a three-year process. Um, that I, I, I was in it for three years, and there was a year or two preceding me, even, um, but the the short of it was it was the very early days of my screenwriting career. I had not been produced yet, and Tom uh, had just started this new company called Playtone, and they had made one movie, that thing you do, and they had made uh, From Earth to the Moon, and Tom had just been making uh, uh, Saving Private Ryan. While he was researching Saving Private Ryan, he read Band of Brothers, and he mentioned to Steven Spielberg that he thought it would be a great miniseries. And so Steven agreed, HBO got involved, and then they hired um, a fellow called Eric Genderson to write what we call a Bible, um, which is sort of an outline, character bios, this wasn't quite that, and um, around that time, while all of that was happening, uh, I was having meetings with Tom Hanks about a movie that I was hoping to write that I never got to write, and I kept bugging him because I was a World War II nut, and I said, well, if you ever need a writer on Band of Brothers, here I am. And so one day in a meeting about that other movie that never got made, uh, Tom suddenly says... Hey, you still want to write for Band of Brothers? And I go, uh, yeah. And he goes, well, great. You want to write the D-Day episode? <laughs> and I go, uh, okay. And that's kind of how I got involved in Band of Brothers. Incredible. So, John, how come you're a World War II nut? Because um, Joe, I was, my father was, so I was, I was sort of raised on it. I had no choice. Brainwashed from an early age. I, you know, I, I went to places like, Sam Eriglees and Wistrom and, and wow. Aramanch and Con when, when I, I mean, I think when I was seven or eight and then again in my teens and then I've since dragged my children for the same indoctrination process. I mean, what, 
uh, and James James has his own origin story of seeing a Spitfire fly over at a cricket While I was playing cricket, yeah. Oh, that's so much more romantic than my story. <laughs> oh, James. James already wins <laughs> Absolutely. The, the story. Um, mine is kind of mundane. Um, I was sort of a latchkey kid. My, my parents divorced when I was one, uh, and I was born in 66. And... Uh, uh, my father was a commercial director and uh, was had made was very wealthy, self-made man, and part of his wealth, and this is in the seventies, the nineteen seventies, was he had a, a sixteen millimeter movie theater in our in his house. I didn't live with him in his house, so he he he'd been very successful in in making commercials. So. He had a collection of movies. This is before VHS existed. Right. So he had movies like he was into World War II movies. So he had Guns of Navarone, The Enemy <laughs> Below, um, uh, Mr. Roberts. Um, I'm trying to think of all the specific ones he had. Anyway, so he had a ton of World War II movies um, that I could watch as a kid over and over and over in the 70s. And then also the 70s, there was still a lot of stuff on TV like Hogan's Heroes. Yeah. On, um, and so you just start reading and you pick stuff up and that's sort of how I got into it. None of my family served in World War II that I'm aware of. Right, right. But so, so World War II and storytelling, though very much bound up together for you then. So, so, to, exactly. write a, so to write about it is kind of... Uh, it's, it's, it's fate, it's destiny, surely. It's my happiest place. It really, <laughs> really is. Um, I've been, it's, it's interesting, though, because right after band, um, I didn't want to come near World War II because uh, I got offered a lot of World War II projects. And, I, and it was three years. And, and even though I, I had only written two hours of the 10 hours, it, it, it was intense and and constant over over several years coming back and forth and meeting with guys and you know when we talk about uh break or it was very intense process yeah, sure. um uh so i was kind of all done with world war ii for for quite a while actually about 10 years before i started writing about it again and then i've been spending most of my last six years deeply writing uh, again for Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, another 10-hour miniseries, this time about the 8th Army Air Force so this is Masters in of the East Air. Anglia. This is Masters of, Masters of the Air, exactly. So and I've you're written... Do, you're doing all of that, aren't you? Well, it started that way, um, and I will have done most of it. Wow. Um, but uh, so I wrote... 500 pages, uh, which is about the first seven episodes um, of what will eventually be 10 episodes uh, over the last six years. And in the last year, we moved from HBO to Apple. Yes. And in that process, we're making some changes of what exactly we're focusing on in the show. Right. And in that process... Um, because of my timing and other stuff, some other people have come on board, Masters, including, and most importantly, Graham Yost, um, who was one of the writers on Band of Brothers and one of the writers on The Pacific, 
unlike me, I didn't work on the Pacific because at that point I actually said no to the Pacific because I was done with World War II. Right. I didn't. I, I just couldn't I mean, like, like, go there. Like the men in the 101st Airborne, basically. You don't want to go to Japan. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I never actually thought of that until you just said it, Al. That's hilarious. But, you know, it takes something out of you, particularly Episode Nine. Yeah, you know, why we fight. Um, it, it, yeah, you, you really go into some dark places. And I knew the Pacific was going to be also very dark for an extended period of time. And indeed, Masters is really yeah. dark. It is, it is. It feels, I mean, Pacific does feel... feel. Yes. No, it's way bleaker. It's, it's way bleaker. So I'm, I, don't, I don't blame you for that. I mean, Masters of the Air, I, I think you're focusing on the 100th bomb. Correct. I, I can verify that. I can't talk a lot about it, though, as you know, James, but I can say certain things. No, I know, I know, but you can verify that. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it, it, that is also, I mean, you're right. It, it's the, the brutality involved and the kind of awfulness, the sort of relentlessness. And one of the things that, you know, we, we, we talked about the air war a little bit before, but, but you know, it's that, it just goes on, particularly in the winter months. Mm-hmm. It's uh, of kind of sort of 1943, early 1944. It's just, you get up, you might be doing a mission, you might not be doing a mission. Um, you'll know the night before, but it's freezing cold. Um, it's just, it's either raining or it's snowing or and it's dark all the time. You know, there's lots of those sort of winter days that you get, particularly in, in the kind of East Anglia, where it's just so flat and, and can get very bleak. You know, where it's those days, those winter days where it never really properly gets light yep. ever. Yep, and we're going to do that. And it just, you know, you, you if you're a young guy and, you you know, you're from Arizona or California or something or Texas or wherever you might be from, and, and suddenly you're kind of sort of transported into this, it must have, that morale thing must have been so hard to maintain. And, and Al and I are talking about the importance of morale, particularly when you're from a democratic nation where... Actually, you do have a bit of a choice. I mean, you know, you might get conscripted, but, you know, you're not going to get shot for kind of desertion or anything like that. You know, how do you keep people going? And, a, and, a, and an army from a democracy that's got no morale isn't an army, whether it's an army air force or whether it's a ground force or whether it's a navy or whatever. You've got to maintain that morale. And and there are some pretty dark moments, you know, after the Schweinfurt raids and Regensburg and all the rest of it, particularly hard, you know, and obviously there's some notorious raids, but there's also raids where... Um, you know, just for that particular bomb group, it's an absolute, you yeah. know, a slaughter, but doesn't necessarily affect the 381st or whatever, or the 99th or whatever it might be. Yeah, and the 100th in particular was a bad luck outfit. You know, I, I think that's one of the most remarkable things about the bomber war is just how they managed to keep people going. Yeah, well, one of the things I'm really excited about being able to do in Masters of the Air, which which no other project that's ever been attempted on the air war has really done is is the the length of time the whole thing so uh you know the 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 group that we're focusing on arrives in june of 43 and as you say doesn't leave for almost 19 20 months yeah and how do you hold that morale through that extended period? And I think we get to explore that in a way that that really wasn't able to be done in two hour time frames. I can't wait. I can't wait. You know? Can't wait to see it. It's an amazing, an amazing, amazing project. It's I I, I got to tell you, it's it's it really is when I say it's going to be like nothing you've ever seen before. It's going to be like nothing you've ever seen before because you never have seen it. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. because because part of what we want to explore that I think is is really interesting is the uh, uh, the the growth, the logistics, and the growth of of the Eighth Air Force is unbelievable. You know, on those first missions, and granted. Obviously, they were Americans even earlier, but this is pretty early. Uh, 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 spring of 43 is when they really started to come over. In 42, there was really only like, I think, tw- not that many planes. So in, in 43, they finally start getting in, up in, in number. And But even then, you know, a mission is 80 planes. You know, a maximum effort is, you know, 80 airplanes. You know, by 44... You know, it's 1,200 bombers and 500 fighters. I know, it's extraordinary, I mean, isn't it? The, nam- the number is so staggering, we really can't picture it. It's so much, right? And we'll be able to show that. And we're going to have battles, you know, with a 1,000 airplanes, you know, um, that will be doing real real airplane stuff. They're not going to be doing spaceship stunts. <laughs> so don't worry about that. So, yeah, that's so I'm really excited about Masters. And, and I have been working on it for, oh, six years now. Well, one of the things we, uh, I think is really interesting is um, you've got, in the case of Banner Brothers, you've got Banner Brothers, and also you've got Don Miller's book, um, The Mighty Ape. To, to, to kind of base it on but let's go back to band of brothers you've got that book it, it, you've got lots of veterans still alive so you've got their accounts and everything but obviously there's a massive difference between the whole 24 hours of d-day and cramming it into one hour uh, and you know i mean break or manor happens on screen in about 10 minutes or something seven minutes obviously you know it took most of the day how do you how do you get the essence of what really happened whilst at the same time kind of maintaining drama because uh, uh, it is fictionalized isn't it really i know it's i know it's 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 factual but it's fictionalized because it is a drama so how do you kind of any yeah you, you know it's no longer for real so how much license is there? How, how, how much effort is there to get it accurate? And, and how much are you looking at that? And how much do you kind of think, okay, we want it to be accurate, but at the same time, this has got to be entertaining and there's got to be some license here. Yeah, it's, it's almost a case-by-case basis. Uh, and it's we can talk about uh, episode two and episode nine um, really interestingly because break uh, episode two is as factual as I could make it. And episode nine is not, for, for reasons we can talk about in a sec. Um, but starting with episode two, you know, it all started from my idea that we would follow winters and only winters that day. That, that was where I started off the episode because he had such a remarkable, singular experience of landing with nothing but a, a, a trench knife in the middle of the dark. And by the end of the day, he is captured or, or disabled, you know, 405. I, can't, I can never remember. It was never, was it 105? Yeah, they, the they are 105s because they were called 88s for a long time. Um, so, 100, yeah. And by the end of the day, he's done that. I mean, that is just an amazing journey. So it started with that. Then, you know, uh, I was very fortunate that I got to interview, actually sit down, you know, when, when in 98, I think, it might have been 99, 
the guys were still having their annual, the veterans were still having their annual get-togethers where they'd pick a city, usually in the Midwest, so everybody could fly and, and join and, and basically spend um, three days drinking themselves under the table and having a kind of group therapy. Right. Because that's what it was. It was, they didn't tell these stories to anybody. As you probably know, these vets just didn't, they didn't talk about it. And they didn't talk it to, to, to their families either. And so the only time they talked about it was when they were together at these events. And so I ended up interviewing, by that point, I already knew I was writing episode two. And so I just specifically sat down with Compton, Malarkey, Lipton, whoever else was there and alive at Braycore. Um, Popeye, Popeye was there, Popeye Wynn, a um, couple other guys. And of course, Dick Winters, but Dick never went to those things, or almost never. And so he and I just spoke on the phone about it. And what I quickly realized was, A, Stephen Ambrose got a lot of things wrong, and B, it's Rashomon. You know, everybody remembers that experience differently. And then on top of it, They've, by that point, had 50 years of telling the story a very specific way that doesn't change. And I found they almost forget what really happened, and they're just telling the story they've always told. Do you find that Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find that an awful lot. And and actually, the the skill is to try and pick together what and, and try and tease out of them the truth rather than the kind of the story that they've told over and over and repeated to themselves right. and, and which has been augmented by something that they've read in a book which has then become exactly. a kind of a, in their own minds a real memory when in fact it isn't a real memory it's a it's a it's a exactly. post-war it's a post-war add-on um that isn't a memory right. at all and so it's, it, it, that's quite that's quite difficult and there's but obviously the more one knows about the subject the easier it is to kind of start teasing out what it is you really want to know right because you can right really dig into the kind of the, the nub of the matter you know and ask them, Precisely. try and ask them questions then, that they haven't been asked before. Because, you know, when they, you know, m- most people, it's, it's in front of a bunch of school kids or it's for the BBC in the case of a British veteran or, you know, some news reporter or whatever. And they're always going to ask the same old questions. It's going to be the same old shit every single time. Uh, and so they've right. got the off-pat stories and the off-pat answers and all the rest of it. And they've got the kind of, you know, it's all pretty rehearsed. So so it's 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 getting to the stuff that they haven't asked. And, and I remember when I was interviewing a lot of veterans, you know, when people would go, do you know what? I've never been asked that before. I would always go, great. Mm-hmm. You know, and I knew I was right, kind of onto right. something. But anyway, I, I, I interrupted yeah. you, John. You weren't kind of... No, no, it's the exact same thing. And, it, and it's a challenge. And you have to sort of, as you said, you know, maneuver through it. And I was kind of lucky with the Braycorn Manor because it was such a specific contained yes. thing. You know, and being able to talk to seven, I think it was like seven guys were still alive out of the 15 or whatever it was. Which is amazing, um, really, when you think about it by 2000, isn't it? Or yeah. Or 1998 or whatever. Yeah. And, 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 you know, Dick Winters was a really amazing man in a lot of ways. And he, one of the ways was, you know, he took his legacy very seriously. And so knew... Had had been keeping all of the, I mean, he knew everything about Braycor he could know. You know, it, it, it wasn't just his memories. He had like a collection of, of well, stuff. this is what I can tell you. Yeah. 
because he and he'd, and he'd it gone was the and most he'd, he'd got he'd become friends with the people who owned Breakall Manor, hadn't he? And he'd been back there and stuff. I think so. Yeah, already by that point. Yeah. Um, so you know, I really got into it deeply, and I tried to make all of the stories connect. Um, and make sense when, you know, Lipton said this happened. I have to make sure that that was around the time when this, you know, it was, it's almost putting a puzzle together. Mm. And then really the key to making it dramatic, as you said, James, was was really understanding that um, Hall um, was the first casualty he had as a leader. And so the episode is it really becomes about leadership and you know, if I could write it again, I'd write it slightly different because I'm a 20 year plus different writer. But, you know, we sort of he's we set up with me and is is killed, who should be the the uh, the platoon's uh, um, leader or the company. Sorry. And uh, he's killed. And, and not only does Winters have to step into those shoes, assume the leadership position with no notice uh, not only does he succeed greatly in it, but he also has his first casualty, death, um, under his command. And that was really what the episode became about. Uh, the, uh, the thing, when, when, when I first watched Bandit Brothers, you know, when it, when it was first on, what I was really struck by is, um, you know, I, I, I grew up on this stuff and read the histories. To actually see it um, so sort of read in tooth and claw on a television um, was 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 really fantastic to see combat as this um, kinetic matter of luck as much as anything else. There's there's judgment and and clearly Winters has excellent judgment, but there's also just this this thing of luck. You've got to keep moving. You've got to push on, and even and even and then even if you do, you can still be killed. The the the, the sheer um, uh, crapshoot of being in combat is a thing that you can conveyed quite brilliantly in that toy. First. It's toy, exactly. You know the the hand grenades twice. That that was real. You know yeah. that happened. Yeah, two hand You know one hand yeah. grenade blew up right next to him, and however many, as you said, we the time is compressed. But yeah. in that same battle, an hour or two later, another fucking hand grenade shows up right next to him. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or potato mash or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. German. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, and that's just blind luck that he didn't get killed that day. You know, I remember when it was. When it was first on, and a bit, there was a lot made of how it looked and how it, you know, because because the, the degraded look in the in the print and all that sort of thing to make it look look of its time. But the thing I the thing I really took from it was the was this thing of and and you know talking about the air war earlier. It, it's just the the sheer extent to which you luck luck is the the lot of the the fighting man, and that you can be you can you know and these these hundred first guys they're the best trained they're the best motivated they're the they're the absolute um you know sharpest tools in in uh Eisenhower's box but even then you know it's 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 a random business war and, and I, I i loved that especially as you get attached to the characters and you get to know them and as the series develops you 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 know you you're you're i mean you're you're the fly on the wall but you're you're part you're being taken on their band of brothers journey and you feel like you're part of the gang and then mm. and then you know uh, Garnier loses his legs like, fuck i like i like this guy i don't want this to happen you know it's, it's well a great a great story about that is so um the interviews at the head of each episode um were not shot for our show 
they were shot for the accompanying documentary, We Stand Alone Together, which was also produced by Tom Hanks and Playtone. So they were making Band of Brothers. HBO was paying for both. Band of Brothers and then this feature called We Stand Alone Together. And interestingly, side note, in those interviews, often the adult at that time, 40s, 50s, children of the guys asked to go to the interview so they could hear the stories for the first time. So anyway, so we shoot all of that, or they shoot all of that stuff. They cut together this documentary. We stand alone together. We start cutting the episodes. And Tom Hanks has the idea, what if we put, you know, if we started each episode with a framing of these if these old guys, and we don't know who they are, and we don't reveal them till the end. All the, the writers, there were five of us, we all said, oh my God, what a terrible idea. That's a horrible idea. Because we thought, <laughs> we thought um, that you'd see the real men, and then you'd cut to these kids in costumes play acting, right? That's what I was worried about. And of course, I was I was totally right. wrong, and it's one of the real great things about the show, and people just go crazy when Dick Winters is revealed or Lipton is revealed at the end. You know, it's yes, but it's just one of those unplanned things that just sort of comes together in process. Yeah. Well, I watched it. I rewatched it only 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 last month in lockdown with my teenage daughter, who's and she's a history nut because she has been like I say been brainwashed similarly. And we got to the end of the last episode and th- there wasn't a dry eye in the house when the, who they were was revealed. She's going, that's that guy, right. I don't believe it. And, and it, it was uh, not part of the original, con- I mean, it was way late in the process that that idea came up. God, because it feels, it feels absolutely like a boilerplate how you made the program when you watch it. Mm-mm. That it's uh, <laughs> Quite the opposite. There, was, there were big arguments about it. But John, you met, you met all these guys and, and got to know them and I guess you became friends with some of them. I mean... Obviously, a massive privilege to 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 get to talk to these guys, and and I mean, were they excited about the TV? I mean, were they pleased that someone was was taking note? Because I do know that Ronnie, I I, I read the 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 letters between um, Ronald Spears and Dick Winters, and and Dick Winters is really trying to persuade him to be a part of it, and he just won't have anything to do with it. And one of the things he keeps saying over and over in his letters is, it's got me thinking about those days, and I just keep thinking. How do we do it? How do we do it? And yet, you know, in the TV, he's this kind of total ice man, isn't he? He's kind of, you know, absolutely imperturbable and, and kind of, you know, never balks at anything. And yet a kind of more vulnerable and fragile character was revealed um, through these letters. But obviously that's as an old man. But of course you ch- you do change, don't you? Obviously you evolve. Right, I was going to say that. I think that more fragile man was, was a little bit later. I can't imagine you send a fragile man to run Spandau. <laughs> Not <laughs> at all. Not at all. I mean, he was obviously tough as old boots. But 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 were most of them, but all the guys you interviewed and, and talked to, were you were they thrilled about it all? Yes, they were, they were completely, absolutely thrilled about it. Uh, they were incredibly helpful. They all answered questions, uh, except for about the concentration camp, which we could talk about if you want. Yeah. Um, nobody wanted to talk about the concentration camp except Winters. Yeah, they were great. Um, it was in, it was the most amazing part of the experience was, was getting to know these men and talk to them and and then sh- 
they knew, I mean, the stories were their stories, you know? I mean, I never looked at the book again. Like, after I read it the first time, yep. the book was done, yep. right? I mean, if I had a question about something, I called up Dick Winters, or I called up Lipton, or I called up Malarkey, or I called up, Amazing. you know, whatever I was writing about at that moment, you know? Um, so... The show was theirs in that sense, you know, and then the actors bonded with them and really spent time with with their living counterparts, if there were living counterparts. And, and, and so the show was as much theirs to begin with in, in a lot of ways, you know, so they were ultimately very happy. Were there some bumps? Yeah. Yeah. You know, Winters had some bumps with the show. Uh, but I, I think, uh, at the end of the day, Winters was extremely thrilled and proud. Well, of the well, I think he Yeah. When, when I need my life exactly. story, um, written yeah. up, John, I'm going to get you to do it then. <laughs> We're just going to take a break now. We're talking to John Orloff about Band of Brothers and a load of other stuff. Welcome back to We Have Ways. We're talking to John Orloff. John, John one of the things that I think is really interesting about, about it, and I think this is where a lot of a lot of World War Two movies and, and TV shows and stuff get get it wrong, it is the language. And I think I think you just nailed it. You set such a high bar with with Dev Days. The whole balance of the the balance of that episode is just absolutely spot on. But it's for, from a historical drama point of view, it's my big big bugbear, and it really sets the tone of a of a film and makes it feel authentic or not. And, and, you know, one of my beefs about Fury, for example, is that it's the language of oh, yeah. 21st century kind of people that play computer games yeah. uh, and what they imagine yeah. that a, a tank crew is going to be talking like yeah. rather than anything close to reality. Whereas I think what you get is the kind of the, the, the badinage, the kind of sort of the, the chit chat and the easy chit chat. It's just so slick in Band of Brothers um, from, from start to the finish. A, thank you so much for recognizing that because I agree with you. And I think one of the reasons that's true is all of us who worked on band uh, were real World War II nuts, you know, right. and have watched all these movies and have read all the... I mean, we're not just screenwriters, you know. No. Um, I, I, I can... I mean, I don't want to badmouth somebody else, but... but um, there was somebody who was working on Masters of the Air before me who was a very great television writer, but wasn't a World War II guy. Right. And uh, it didn't work out, you know. Um, and so I, that's when I got involved in the project and started from scratch. Um, you need people who really know the time period. Um, uh and I'll tell you this, uh, uh, our fine director of episode two, who is a Brit, at one point kind of went off the reservation and rewrote the script. He wrote 1940s American dialogue as a Brit who watched a lot of John Wayne movies would. Right. And so the dialogue became that. Cliched and hackneyed um, and all those sort of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we got rid of that and went back to my draft. Um, you're right. It's really, 
it's really uh, hard, you yeah. know, to not. Uh, there's so many things that have to to work right to make mm. it right. Is, is, right, and you're right to pick up on the dialogue is is really interesting because it's it's very easy to start cursing in the wrong way. For example, like the the way people cursed in the 40s is very different the way we curse now and the way you phrase it is different and it drives me crazy when you know somebody is using a modern curse kind of construction. Sure. Yeah. So I'm with you on that pet peeve. Well, I just I just think it is really important you want, and, and you want it to be relevant to today's audience but at the same time it's got to have that crucial flavor that that kind of snap mm-hmm. of authenticity. And it's one of those things that if you don't know it, if you if you don't, quite often you might watch a movie or a, or a TV show or something, and there's something that, that's just not working for you, you you can't quite work out what it is. But actually, that's probably it, or, or probably one of the things that's that's gone wrong. I mean, we were we were all laughing our heads off the other day at a kind of trailer for a for a new movie called D Day, and and it had somebody called Randy Cantor in it or something. Randy Couture. Randy Couture. I mean. It, it's so bad. It's just you, you can tell that everything about it is just completely sh1t. It starts with the dialogue, which is just beyond awful. I mean, beyond awful. And and I I really think it's such an important part of Band of Brothers, the series, is that the dialogue is absolutely just razor sharp from start to finish. Oh, thank you. I I would agree with you. I I would agree. It's one of the strong points. Yeah. No, I would agree with you. It's it's one of the strong points of of the show you know i mean we really did work our butts off to get stuff right we really everybody you know writers directors i mean it really was not just a job you know everybody worked really hard to get it right mostly we did it you know there's problems like there is with everything um but but mostly it, it works now, to, to come to episode nine, yeah. as you said earlier, the, 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 the men didn't talk about it quite clearly because this is a different, this is a different tone note in the, in the programme, if, if, in the series, if, if, if nothing else. How did you go about approaching that? Cause, cause the, because 101st Easy Company weren't the first people there, were they, and all that sort of thing. So you did some, you did some necessary elision in the storytelling to, to get to the point you wanted to make. So how, did, how do you go at that episode? Um, it was unclear in 1999 who the first people were to get to Landsberg. Uh, well, I think it's the 14th Armored, or I can't remember who it, it turns out to have actually been. So remember, it's 1999. The internet really doesn't exist as we know it. So you can't just type up Landsberg and get the Wikipedia page, which tells you who opened it, right? You can't. And so... Uh, I have a lot less ways to figure out what really happened than we do now. So you ask the men and uh, pretty much to a man, they said they wouldn't talk about it. You know, they just I would say, OK, Lipton, OK, you know, Malarkey or whoever. uh, What happened, you know, on April or May, whenever it was, April 20. I can't remember. Uh, And they basically said, I can't I I, I don't want to talk about that. Because they were there. They did go there that either that day or the second day, the 101st. They, they, they were there and helping cleaning. They were there. So I didn't know and I had no way of figuring out who actually opened it first, to be quite honest. So I didn't even think that was a cheat. I thought that was a who knows, right? Because that was what it was at the time. But the episode, 
on a larger scale is fictional um, in the sense that the the dramatic arc of it, Nixon's arc, is not necessarily 100% historic, you know. Uh, what happened was Tom asked me to write the ninth episode after I had turned in the second episode. And again, with really no guidance, like, what do you want it to be about? Uh, I don't know. You know, so I, I, I was able to start from total scratch. And at that point... We had already had Ron Livingston had been hired to be Nixon, and he was fantastic. And I wanted to write an episode about Nixon. So I went to Winters and said, uh, would you tell me everything about Nixon in this time period? And, you know, all that there really was was the divorce. Because Nixon had died by that time. Yes, right? Nixon was dead. I think he died in the... I want to say 80s. Uh, but yes, he, he was dead. He was dead by the time we did Band. And his widow uh, didn't marry him until the 60s. So didn't really know a lot about his war years. Grace. Um, so I wanted to write an episode about Nixon. I wanted it to be... I wanted it to be about disillusionment with the war. Mm. Um and that seemed to coincide with, with Nixon's divorce. And so that story may have happened. I don't know. He certainly didn't walk into, for example, Nixon uh, walks into the German widow's house, right? Yes. And um, that really did happen, but it happened to Winters. Winters walked into a house when they, you know, when they had gone to a village and were taking over a village. He just walked into a house because that's what you did and decided whether that was going to be the house he was going to stay in that night. And he was met by the cold German wife. And what happened is what happened without a word. He left because he felt shamed. And I made that for me creatively was then the linchpin because you go, oh, what if you have Nixon shamed by this Nazi for entering in, you know, unannounced, unasked, you know, just barging in. And then you contrast that with that same woman, which is fictionalized, at that concentration camp, and now they see each other again. And now what does that look mean? That's really all the episode is about to me. Um, it's about guilt. It's about degrees of evil it's about all sorts of things yeah so that is a fictionalized story you know whereas nothing in episode two is really fictionalized all the main beats happen uh, as depicted yeah yeah all the main beats are very very true and in episode nine the beats are kind of true you know um so but it's, it's not a, exactly it's, it's that a, way it's a truthful telling of of the, of the human drama, as it were. It's a more thematic telling of a bigger idea. That's the one episode we do that in, where we have a more existential question of why was this war fought? Was it worth it? Was it necessary? Why were we here, yeah. us Americans specifically? Mm -hmm. um, and they were feeling, particularly guys like that had been from Tacoa. You know, they'd been fighting for 18 months, you know. I mean, we were talking about the air guys earlier. Okay, well, it, yes, it was way worse. I would not have wanted to be an airman. But if you were lucky enough to make your 25 or 30 or 35 missions, you got to go home. 
You know, nobody in the 101st got to go home until the war was over, no matter what. Yeah, or imagine, imagine, imagine being one of those those units that kind of you know. I mean, imagine being in the big red one, for example. You know, you, you you've come over to you've left home in in I don't know uh, uh, early 1942. Um, you, you're you're in England for the summer. Then the next thing you know, you're you're sailing to North Africa. You fight all the way through that, which you know seems in. Uh, you know, by what happened, a bit of a sideshow, but actually for those who are in the front line, it was pretty serious business. And the big red one particularly was in the action right from the word go because they were attached to the British in the in the race for Tunis in the end of 1942. Um, uh, and so only rejoined two corps kind of post uh, um, the Kasserine Pass and everything. But they're in it right through to the very end. They're among the troops taking Berserter at the end. Then they're on. They're 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 landing on on D Day and Operation Husky, invasion of Sicily. Fight all the way through the Sicilian campaign of the American units. They probably have the toughest of of all because they're in the middle and they get the have to deal with the counterattack at Jella in the first place. Um, so they're right through the word go. They're at Troina. You know they have to do run down, So it just so it goes on, um, and then. You know, th- then they're taken back to England, and then they've got eighteen months, you know, or another year rather of of, of from, from D-Day right through, or certainly eleven months right through to the end of the war as well. You know, they're just in it all the time, and you know, and in the British Army, you have exactly the same sort of units. You know, you have these units like the you know certain battalions of the Durham Light Infantry that, that Alan and I have talked about before, who just non-stop. I mean, it, you know, you could be away, you would but not have seen your, your family at all. No. <laughs> No, those guys no. who go, go, you know, so, so, I mean, I interviewed these amazing identical twins called Tom and D Bowles, who left, you know, their, their, their mum died when, um, I don't know, they were like in their early teens, their dad brought them up, then he died while they were training for the first of, you know, big red one back in the States. They came over in 1942, and they didn't go home until July or August 1945. And you've, you've plenty of British soldiers who were away 39, all the way to the end, all the way to the end of the war. Um, uh, they yeah, never got they never, like a leave. They never, they to never go got back. home. They, were, they, they, they might have had leave in, in Cairo or, or, or Rome. Right, or right, right. Like that, but, but if they, they couldn't, they didn't. They couldn't go home because 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 obviously the hundred and first. There were a couple of times where they were pulled from the front lines and went back to the UK. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, to re, to reconstitute and replace and all that sort of stuff. Because right, because right, because they're right. not line because they're not line infantry as such. So so right. So I was just wondering if a British unit had that same experience, they'd go back to to off the front lines, go back to England, and could, you could have well, you, two weeks. I don't, I don't think with they'd go. Girl. I don't think they'd go as formations. I think you could you could mm-hmm. you could wangle leave once you were um, once once the Northwestern European campaign began after D Day. That, and certainly once after the breakout that there were people going home but 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 you're still looking at you know the, after all the, the the british war is this uh is everywhere um uh and you do i mean a friend of mine's a friend of mine's grandfather he was gone from 39 to 45 and uh and when he got home uh in i think july of 1945 he walked he lived in south london a place called mitcham in south london which is like seven or eight miles from the railway station he got to victoria railway station walked all the way home with his kit bag went to the pub first <laughs> had a couple of pints and then and then went home to my friend's grandmother and he he interestingly he's he was one of those people who said that the war was in technicolor and the rest of his life was in black and white and it was the greatest experience wow. of his life god and i remember i remember i, I remember um, john and Al, i remember i remember this this wonderful guy i i got to know who lived up in wigan up in the north of north of england and he had been a tank man um and i think he was three 
Royal Tank Regiment, maybe it was Sif, doesn't matter. Anyway, he was a tank man, and he, so he was sent out. To, he was sent out to North Africa in 1940, um, and was involved in all the major battles. Got got really badly wounded in um, December 1941 um, at, at a battle called Sidi Rezeg. Really badly wounded. Recovered in time for the Battle of Alamein. So it was then the Battle of Alamein. Then kind of fought all the way the whole through whole thing, all the way through Italy. Um, and then got right at the very end of the Italian campaign, got shot in the neck um, and very nearly died, but eventually got repatriated, got, you know, got, got back home, went back home. He hadn't been home since early 1940 and he opened the door and he could, and he lived up in Liverpool at the time and he went back to Liverpool and, and everything was different. My, my favourite war, World War II film is probably um, Best Years of Our Lives, which is obviously coming back from the war. Um, and it deals with all those issues in an incredible way uh, of coming home and how life is never the same. It's an extraordinary movie, and and the the, the I, I mean I always think that the, if if you if you do if you do dig you do find those films where the experience of the war is being processed. I mean a lot of them are a lot of them are sort of allegorical anyway, and they they don't they don't do it as on the nose as that film. I think. No, I think this film, I mean, it's it's very special for a few reasons. One of them is, as I said, William Wyler had actually flown in, in B-17s in combat, so he knew exactly who these guys were. And B, you know, uh, the one character, um, uh, the Navy guy, actually one of the guys is a Navy guy, uh, is a real vet who had lost both of his hands. Um, and he's one of the main characters coming home to his girlfriend with these claws, um, it's just, it's really good. It's really good. It's, it, I consider well, it, I consider I consider it one it. of the first modern films in the sense that it's dealing with real adult issues in a real adult way. And, and John, I've also got to thank you for something else, actually, because following the last conversation we had, it really got me thinking. And by, by the time I woke up the following morning, I was really absolutely convinced that I was on something. And that is that, that I've, I've had a long association with a particular tank regiment a uh, British tank regiment called Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry, who one of these ones that kind of, you know, they were sent off to the Middle East, to Palestine with their horses in 1939. But but by the end of the war, they were the single unit with more battle honours than any wow. other. You know, they turned into this supremely good tank unit, even though they're a kind of a TA unit, so like a National Guard unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got me thinking that actually there was time for a kind of a band of brothers, Mark II, but with a, with a, with a tank, tank unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, since then, I've sort of started thinking about it, thinking about it a bit more. And I've realized that actually um, in, in my, my own archive and, um, and out there and, you know, by pulling other archives and talking to people that are still just about alive and all the rest of it, I've got well over 20 veterans of this one regiment, which is enough on which to base a book. So anyway, the long short of it is, I literally last week or week before last, I signed the deal. Well, congratulations! And, um, I'm going to be doing it, and we're, and we're calling it an absolutely no way. Uh, uh, is it in any sense a ripoff? <laughs> we're calling it Brothers in Arms. <laughs> awesome, Brothers in Arms. Congratulations! But that all came about from that conversation, so I owe you one big time. So, so when we finally hook up and meet, uh, you get to buy the beers. Many, many drinks are coming yes, your yes, way. Yes, yes, the pints well. are on you. Well, we will because. Uh, Theoretically, knock on wood, assuming everything goes well, uh, we'll be shooting Masters of the Air uh, outside of London next year. So, oh great! So uh, I'm going to take you up on that uh, pint or two or more. Well, yeah, and I tell you what, we if if there's any way you can wangle Al and I up there, we'll do another podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, that would be great. brilliant, John. Well, John, um, I think that's that's kind of all we've got time for. Um, I I certainly. Um, 
My two-year-old is having her supper, so oh, I have no. to go and join her. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you're talking about the war again, Dad. She's two and a half and has rumbled me. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for um, taking some time out to speak to us. Um, I, I mean, there's still so much I'd like to ask you about the D-Day episode, but maybe we'll... we'll another time. I'm we'll always, get, I am happy to do it another back. time. Come back. Excellent. Well, thanks very much, John Olof. Thanks for joining us. Cheerio. Cheerio.